Welcome to Skylights, the podcast of Open Sky Wilderness Therapy. Nestled in the mountains of southwest Colorado and the canyonlands of southeast Utah, Open Sky transcends traditional wilderness therapy by emphasizing treatment for the whole family. Our clinical approach integrates the latest in evidence-based treatments with innovative and research-driven holistic healing practices. On each episode of the Skylights podcast, we speak with experts in the field of wilderness therapy and explore the unique value the outdoors provides on the journey towards wellness, self-discovery, and growth for adolescents, young adults, and their families. To learn more about Open Sky, visit us at openskywilderness.com. Welcome to the podcast. We're glad you're here. Disordered eating, different from eating disorders, is a condition we're seeing more and more often at Open Sky in both boys and girls. While eating disorders may be more commonly understood in our society, disordered eating is less well known. To help us better understand this topic, especially as it relates to youth, we're speaking with Kirsten Bolt, Senior Clinical Therapist for Adolescent Girls at Open Sky. Kirsten has worked with many students who have struggled with disordered eating and has many valuable insights to offer. Passionate about working with adolescent girls, Kirsten emphasizes emotional regulation, assertive communication, identity development, vulnerability, and healthy relationships in her treatment approach. She incorporates humor and playfulness into all she does and quickly develops strong therapeutic relationships with her students and families. Welcome, Kirsten, and thanks for joining us to discuss this important topic today. Thanks, Emily. Great to be here. So before we dive into the topic, let's just start with why? Like, why do you believe that this is such an important topic to focus on at this time? Excellent question. I would say anecdotally that we are seeing a significant increase. I have seen a significant increase in disordered eating patterns and even full-blown eating disorders in the last couple of years. I noticed it with the start of the pandemic. I have lots of theories about this, and we can go into some of those now or later, but I think more and more this is becoming a coping strategy for young people, and we just need to be more adept at how we support them in this. Yes, I mean, it makes sense coming out of this period of time that was so isolating young people more on their own, in their rooms, in their houses. There's more access to food, but also it's just more accessible in terms of a way to manage emotions. I think so. Yeah. Part of my theory is as we became more stuck at home and more bound to our computers, especially for our adolescents who are in school, and, and there was that long period of time where, um, especially in some of the more densely populated areas of the country where people were at home doing education for over a year. And in that time, I think all of our boundaries about screen time necessarily went out the window as right. parents. Mm-hmm. And I think as such, with people being able to connect less in person, and even for such a, a long period of time, not at all in person, people were connecting significantly more on all of the social media platforms, which so many positives about that and so many downsides as well. I think we really affix meaning to our bodies and there's a lot of falseness in the images that are posted. I think people were comparing themselves. I think some of the other coping mechanisms became unavailable in that time. I think I saw certainly in the teens that I was working with at the time, I saw a decrease in substance use, increase in disordered eating, increase in self-injury, I think the things that were accessible to them became more prevalent. Right. And less activity, less 
movement, kind of all of that together. Feeling more out of control too. I mean, I think that was a a huge part of it. And comfort. I think we all can relate to that feeling of like just opening the fridge or snacking, you know, kind of mindlessly between Zoom calls. Like, so actually that's a nice segue in terms of talking about the difference between disordered eating and an eating disorder. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about those terms, because I think there is some kind of normalcy that probably all of us at one point or another have engaged in some disordered eating. Absolutely. I think so many of us can relate to what just some of the examples that you said, whether it's the mindless eating because I'm uncomfortable or getting ice cream because I'm sad or having popcorn because I'm watching a movie, not because I'm hungry. I mean, I think we can relate to those concepts. But more broadly, when we talk about eating disorders, we're talking about a very specific set of criteria that have been identified in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that describe certain patterns that have really become significant enough that they're interfering with one's daily functioning. When we're talking about disordered eating, this is obviously a lesser version of the same behavioral patterns, but it's something that is so much more widespread. As you're saying, so many of us engage in some unhealthy patterns. And it could be with our use of exercise. It could be with using diet pills. It could be mindless eating. It could be so many things. And so what we're really talking about today is focusing on some of those disordered eating patterns that are not going to meet full criteria for an eating disorder, but are very potentially could have some significant concerns and could impact us. Right. Everything exists on a spectrum. So you're saying when it gets more to the point of disordered is when it begins to affect daily functioning or have negative effects on us, but doesn't yet meet the criteria for the DSM. Absolutely. And what we're talking about with eating disorders are the things that we've all heard of, anorexia and bulimia, binge eating disorder, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. We maybe have not heard of that one as much, but these are very specific diagnostic descriptions of problematic behavior that's really interfering with one's life. And yes, disordered eating is the lesser version of that. That is the beginning of what could become very serious. And so we need to pay attention to it. Right. So... You mentioned anorexia, bulimia, binge eating. Another one I'd really like you to touch on is orthorexia. Yeah. So, I mean, I think when we're talking about the disordered eating patterns, anorexia is restricting one's food intake such that you're losing a significant amount of weight that can actually become very life-threatening. Binge eating is when we're eating excessively beyond being full. Over-exercising is something that sometimes people engage in in order to lose weight. They can spend hours on the treadmill purging in which we're vomiting or other means. It could be the use of laxatives to purge extra calories from our bodies. I think we talked a little earlier about stress eating, in which case, you know, we're sad and so we're grabbing the ice cream. It's not because we're hungry. We're coping somehow with emotions. Sometimes we talk about like people that are just picky eaters. That can even be a disordered eating pattern. Sometimes people are just picky, but (laughs) sometimes people are incredibly rigid about what they'll eat. And so not that they're restricting in the same way that we see with anorexia or or subclinical anorexia, but with orthorexia, which is not officially yet a, a full 
eating disorder diagnosis. But with orthorexia, what we frequently see is people focus on particular foods that feel safe to eat. And so they'll restrict whole food groups out of their diet. They'll eat only a few types of foods. They'll eat only if somebody says beta carotene is good for their eyes, maybe they start eating carrots excessively, you know, and so it can be this really unhealthy focus and in which case they actually can really deplete themselves nutritionally and find themselves in a really life-threatening situation. So we see that sometimes other disordered eating patterns, excessive calorie counting, excessive weighing oneself. And we see so frequently, and this is something a lot of people can relate to, men, women, everybody, a lot of our day being focused on how we look and our weight and how our bodies are changing day to day or whether they are changing. So again, I go back to some of those are very serious and very obvious concerns in the disordered eating spectrum. And some of those are things that most of us do that could eventually become more problematic. And it's a tricky thing for parents to address because there's that fine line. It's a sensitive topic. It is a sensitive topic. I'm glad you said that. It makes me think how many students I've worked with in the last couple of years, especially who accuse their parents of body shaming or fat shaming them, you know, and it's parents who are trying to express concern because they see some of these disordered, unhealthy eating patterns and they're trying to express concern. And maybe they don't have the best words on how to express the concern, but the kids are hearing it in a way of, there's something wrong with you, you're fat, you're not good enough. And they're internalizing those messages. And then it creates more discord between the child and the parents. Right. So what are some of those disordered eating patterns that might cause concern for a parent? Yeah, I think things that parents can be attuning to is how much time their child is spending online and what they're doing online. Are they spending a lot of their time on social media websites comparing themselves? You know, it's something that so many girls especially fall prey to is posting lots of pictures of themselves and then obsessing about how many likes they're getting and the comments that they're getting and who isn't liking them. And, you know, and so I think number one is just paying attention to some of their habits and where their information's coming from. That would also extend to some of the other media forms. So, Netflix and what are they watching on Netflix and are parents finding that their child is on some of pornography websites and what are they doing when they're comparing themselves there? Are they on some of these sugar daddy websites that are becoming more prevalent today? You know, so I think one thing is that parents can really do is attune to what their child is doing online. I think parents can also be paying attention to what their child is wearing. As kids start to restrict their food intake, they often start wearing baggy clothes. That can be an indication of something more problematic developing. I think parents can pay attention to what their kids are eating and are they taking their meals to their rooms? Are they finding evidence of the food disappearing? Are there wrappers for kids who are binge eating? Are they finding wrappers stuffed all over the house where they're trying to hide the evidence of snacks? Is their child starting to have reasons to not participate in mealtime? What are some other ways that these disordered eating patterns can affect a person's day-to-day life? Good question. Big question. There are a lot of significant concerns. And again, we're focusing more today on some of the earlier developing patterns, but I'll speak to the more serious, you know, where this can all head. You know, I, I would say that there are significant impacts physically, emotionally, mentally, socially, relationally, spiritually, even. Right. I think physically, some of the things that can be of concern, you know, is just on a very simple level, kids feel more fatigued if they're not getting the nutrition they need. 
They might feel weaker and not able to participate in sports, which historically maybe was a source of empowerment and self-worth. They might be starting to see some significant weight loss or weight gain, which also has some significant impacts and also can perpetuate all of the comparing of oneself to other peers. And if one is starting to gain weight, can also have some significant impacts on how they function in their daily lives and how they feel about themselves and bullying that can take place. It can create more cyclicalness with the disordered eating patterns. And then there are some very serious, again, you know, on the spectrum, there can be some very serious endocrine, reproductive, cardiac issues, even death. Anorexia is still one of the leading causes of death for adolescent girls in this country. So on the physical level, there can be some very significant impact. Speak more about the emotional. I alluded to a little bit of it earlier. You know, self-worth can be a factor. Kids can feel actually more out of control emotionally the more that they engage something, for which sometimes they're trying to feel more in control of their emotions. But the more that we lose control over these patterns, the more we actually feel out of control. They might be feeling more hopeless. They might feel more isolated. They might feel angry and shaming of themselves. And so there can be significant emotional impact in that way. Right, which then kind of connects with the social isolation or social stress. Absolutely. Relationship stress. Yeah. I mean, there can be the relational stress of conflict that occurs between children and parents in trying to address these issues, the social stress peer-wise. There could be romantic relationship stress. Kids can feel more rejected and more isolated and pull away. And as we said, you know, they might start disengaging from mealtime, which is often a place for connection. It can affect one's academic well-being and concentration and focus decreases and worsens as people are less physically well and their brain isn't functioning as well as it could. Comes from either maybe not eating enough or eating foods that, you know, are just feeding a negative kind of cycle, like lots of sugar or lots of simple carbs. Like it's hard for your brain to function as well. Right. And how much that can affect depression. I mean, that's the thing, Emily, you know, so all of these pieces are really so intrinsically connected. You know, it was sort of groundbreaking, you know, I don't know, 20 years ago when the body and the mind are inherently connected, you know, and all the research started supporting that. And, you know, it's it's kind of common knowledge today, but I just reiterate how much all of these things exacerbate and play off each other. So, you know, as we see clinical symptoms, mental health symptoms increasing, it affects one's physical health. As the physical health decreases, it can affect one's social well-being, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So what are some of the co-occurring mental health issues that tend to show up with disordered eating? Good question. So as we see some of the disordered eating patterns take hold, anxiety can increase, depression can increase, which again can further complicate the relational factors. And so isolation can increase. Kids can then start picking up some other unhealthy patterns. You know, they might find themselves in engaging in self-injury or substance use. I mean, there can be other behavioral patterns that they pick up as well. It can also affect one's executive functioning skills, which affects school and affects vocation, work. I would say that the mental health, emotional health tolls exacerbate everything. Right. And then it kind of creates this, which came first piece of like, is it the disorder eating creating the depression or does the depression feed into the disorder eating? And it's, you know, total chicken it's, and it's, the egg. it's all kind of related. Absolutely. Yeah. So can you share a little bit more about some of the causes of disordered eating? Like where does this emerge from? 
You bet. That's a big question. I'll try to (laughs) just give a few pieces. We've touched on some of it already. I think there are a lot of societal factors and cultural factors, you know, kids comparing themselves. I think for girls in particular, and I want to be really clear, this is disordered eating is, is anybody. I think we so commonly think about Disordered eating, we think eating disorders, we think anorexia, we think girls. And it's just not that. There are so many, so many people that are are struggling with this. It's across all populations and demographics. But I think there is a lot of societal pressure for girls in particular about where their worth is, and that's often in their bodies. And that gets that's a message that gets reinforced again and again and again. And so I think a lot of and I'm speaking to girls because that's my population with whom I work, but I think that's a huge contributor. I don't think it's the only factor, though. I think it's back to your chicken and egg you know, idea. I think this is something that people are utilizing as a means to cope and manage their emotions. And so sometimes it's about this is something I can control where everything else in my life feels out of control and I feel powerless. I think that's a huge contributor. There can be other mental health issues. Home can feel really stressful. School can feel stressful. There could be traumatic experiences that kids have been through and haven't processed, you know, and this is something that they can do to have control over this piece or to feel better about themselves. It can be from a a lack of self-worth. And if I just look a certain way, then I'll be accepted and loved and lovable. We're also finding a high correlation with genetics, which is an interesting piece that a lot of the parental genetics are in informed children's genetics. And there, there's actually a predisposition for some eating disorders based on family history. And so there can be this whole constellation, you know, from society to peer influences and family influences and genetics, and then just one's own intrapersonal psyche. It's normal for it to bring up you know, stuff for all of us. And as you speak about that genetics and kind of the parental piece, just like young people will model after their parents' relationship with technology, they'll also model after their parents' relationship with food. So that can create, you know, maybe more stress for the parent, but also hopefully some more motivation too for like, okay, I really need to look at my own patterns here. Yeah. If I'm going to ask my kid to do that. I need to do that myself too. It's something I'm really aware of, you know, my own relationship with food and my body and what messages am I implicitly not explicitly. I try really hard to be cautious of what I say and do and model for my children, but the implicit messages are still there on some level, you know? And so it's this constant process, I think, you know, and I hear a lot of kids talk about, well, but my mom talks really badly about her body. And it's like, wow, yeah, it's so hard to think about all of those pieces. Right. And it's normal and actually can be a really wonderful thing to have connection around food. Like food is a way we come together as family and friends. There's a lot to celebrate about food. And, you know, as with everything, there can be that double-edged sword. Absolutely. So one of the topics you touched on was the impact of our cultural obsession with the perfect body. Could you elaborate a little bit on the role that society plays in messages and attitudes that contribute to disordered eating? There's some research that identified about 89% of Americans believe that physical appearance is 
important in today's society. That's really staggering. It means almost all of us are walking around thinking about our bodies and how we look and how we present ourselves and thinking about other people and their bodies and how they present themselves. And, you know, and there's so much pressure from, I think, all the celebrities that we see on television shows. And especially I go back to the pandemic and how many of us were binge watching for the last two years? (laughs) Most of us, you know, and so I think that we're flooded with images, like it or not. I think so frequently we forget that so much of what we see on all these images has been digitally doctored, right? Right. Photoshop, airbrush is what we used to call it back in the day. And, you know, and so I think there's just so much comparison of things that aren't even real. You know, how much does that affect one's self-worth? It's like we're trying to be something that's not even real. Right. So on that point, what are some things we can do to counter these influences I think if we could spend more time talking to our kids and having those explicit conversations and being mindful of our own relationships with ourselves and our bodies, I think as parents, that's something that we can do that can be really powerful, you know, just engaging some really direct conversations and talking with our children while we're watching a show about what messages are we seeing. I also think these messages are not just in images and photos and movies and social media, but it's in the music that we listen to. And I think so much of our music today has a lot of really demeaning messages, particularly about women. So I think being mindful of what we're listening to, you know, so often, and I'm guilty of this, you know, we let our kids put their headphones on and just listen to whatever and watch whatever they're, you know, without a lot of oversight. And so again, I go back to check in with what are your kids doing? But also when you're in the car, like put the music on the radio, you know, show interest in what your child is listening to. And then you can have some really fascinating conversations Mm -hmm. about the lyrics. So yeah, and all these topics are so, can be so tense and touchy and so hard to know kind of when should I start being concerned, like what's normal, what's not. What can parents do if they're wondering or worrying that their child is kind of entering that territory of disordered eating? Yeah, I honestly, I think I would start with some direct questions. You know, I think it's something that because we're so afraid of fat shaming or, you know, presenting in a judgmental way, I think a lot of times we maybe steer away from those and avoid those conversations, or we try to ask those questions in really passive, sideways kinds of ways. Right. And I think that it's actually really powerful to just really directly express the concern that that you might be feeling and say, hey, can I, can we go for a walk? You know, do something so it's not like we're going to sit and have an intense conversation, but hey, can we go for a drive? Hey, can we go for a walk? And just ask them some direct questions, you know, and just maybe you start with an observation, you know, hey, it seems like I've been seeing more of this lately and I feel a little worried or maybe not minimizing. I feel worried when I see that. I'd love to hear, like, what is your sense of that? Depending on the relationship with your child, depending on how severe the issue actually is, they may or may not be forthcoming, right? You know, but it's a starting point to just be able to ask direct questions. It conveys, I see you, I'm paying attention, and I care. Mm -hmm. These are really important messages for Mm -hmm. our kids. That's where I would start. And I just would encourage not shying away. Depending on what you hear and depending on, you know, what what you don't hear from your child, then maybe you take it a step further and you talk to them about going to therapy or if they're already with a therapist, 
you know, maybe you bring it up in therapy and you express some concern. Maybe you talk to the team at their school and say, hey, what are you noticing? Because they might be eating at home or looking like they're eating at home and they might be skipping lunch every day at school and somebody notices that. You might get some information from their friends that's helpful or peers might have some information to offer. Right, or maybe just observing kind of what are the food behaviors when the kids hang out? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think paying attention, asking questions, and then raising the alert, expressing the concern that you have, and then just get them some help, especially if they're ready, if they acknowledge there's a problem, get them some help. If they don't acknowledge that there's a problem, and I run into this a lot, especially with disordered eating and even more so with eating disorders, that a lot of times people don't want to admit it because then they'll have to deal with it. I mean, if I keep denying and keep denying and keep denying, even though my clothes are hanging off me all of the sudden, I can still keep people at arm's length and not have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So building on that, what are some of the things maybe just kind of as we wrap up here that you do in working with your students who struggle with these topics? Good question. Frankly, I would say the same thing that I just said for parents. I ask specific direct questions. I'll be really directive with kids and say, look, this is what I'm seeing. And I think this is a bigger problem than you want to acknowledge. And I think we need to talk about that. I'll have parents write intentional letters in which they highlight all the observations that they've seen. If, if I'm working with a, a student to develop insight around disordered eating, I'll have parents really say, this is what we're seeing. It's pretty effective because it's hard to argue with just facts. I think where we get, it, it gets complicated at home is when all the emotions get swept up in it, you know, and parents are scared and parents are worried and then kids feel that intensity and then kids get defensive and push back against the parents. And so I try to work in a really relational but direct way where I'm going to hold them accountable to what we're seeing and in a very loving hey, this is coming from somewhere and it's filling some need. You know, all behaviors are about trying to get some need met ultimately, you know? And so that's the thing. It's always looking at what are you getting from this behavior? And then we start looking at how does this serve you and how is this not serving you? Because short-term it works. That's why they're doing it. But long-term it's probably creating more problems as we talked about emotionally, physically, relationally, academically, et cetera. So we start looking at the big picture of short-term meeting some need, long-term making things worse, which helps them create motivation for change. I don't know about you. Nobody has ever been successful in encouraging me to change by saying you need to change. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you have a problem, you need to change. It, do it doesn't work, you know? So, so much of our work out here is helping create awareness and helping create internal motivation for change because that's how it works. And then we teach them emotional resilience skills and we teach them how to manage their feelings and how to express their emotions and how to ask for help and how to accept help. All the day-to-day -day tasks that kids are doing out here are inherently designed to build self-efficacy and confidence and self-worth and emotional resilience. We're providing this platform for them to get away from all the triggers from home, to look at this stuff more objectively, to build some new skills and a foundation to be able to do things differently, helping them create some motivation to do things differently, helping kids and parents strengthen their relationships so that they can utilize all of this together moving forward. And we go from there. Well, that is a wonderful note to wrap this up on, Kirsten. What an arc of information and knowledge you bring. And thank you for sharing your insights on this topic today. Absolutely. 
Thanks to our guest today, Kirsten Bolt, Senior Clinical Therapist for Girls at Open Sky. For more on this topic, check out Open Sky's podcast, Body Image Perception and Its Impact on Adolescent Girls. To learn more about Open Sky Wilderness Therapy and Kirsten's clinical approach, visit openskywilderness.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and review us on your podcast app of choice. Thanks for listening. 